Well, it is a, uh, a real joy to be with you. Um, one of the things that really preachers worry about is putting people to sleep. Uh, tonight, I'm worried about putting myself to sleep. We, <laughs> we came to Ottawa, and you know, we've come here on conferences and different things, but I, we hadn't really sort of just taken a day to just enjoy the city. So this morning, we get up, and we had a hearty breakfast, and we went down to the Rideau Canal, and we just started walking. And, and I thought, like I got turned around, so I thought we were walking toward the Parliament buildings. We'd come around a corner and kind of, ah, the Parliament buildings. And I was going in the wrong direction. So we, we walked and walked and walked, and finally we realized that um, we weren't getting there. So here's the thing. If I put myself to sleep tonight, can somebody please wake me up halfway through this sermon? Because I'm feeling really tired. Cindy prayed for me, and I'm just... Uh, Really trusting that God will give me the, the strength and the uh, fortitude to get through this. But I'm really excited about being here tonight and uh, also next Saturday night to just spend a bit of time with you preaching God's word. And I trust uh, edifying and encouraging your hearts in the word of God. Uh, before I start, though, I just want to congratulate you for something. Obviously, I'm here because Pastor Ray is not. And I, I think... The, the leaders of this church made a wise decision. Cindy and I had a sabbatical back in 2009, and it was so life-giving, it was so needed, it was so restorative, it was such a powerful moment in our journey. And really, it was all about longevity for us. I, I, don't, I was in my previous church, the church... Steve Croker has preached here. Uh, Steve took my place. I hired him, and, and sort of I stepped out of that role, and he stepped in. But I was in that pulpit for 32 years, and that's a long time. And that sabbatical was so, so critical. So congratulations on that decision. Uh, you will reap the benefits, I believe, as a congregation as you move forward. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, please turn. We're going to be looking at the book of Philemon. It's page 580. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible and you need to take one home, please grab that and um, just be more than, uh, more than blessed by that. Awesome. So over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about both the necessity and the nature of genuine forgiveness. As I said, I want to do this. I want to look at forgiveness, genuine forgiveness, through the lens of the book of Philemon. It's a little book written by the Apostle Paul to his dear friend and fellow worker in Christ, a man named Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy businessman. He lived in the city of Colossae. He was married to Apphia, his wife, uh, and had a son, at least one son, we probably had more, but we know of one son by the name of Archippus. He lived in a large home in Colossae and had a number of slaves. He was a wealthy man. Sometime between 52 and 55 AD, Philemon must have gone to Ephesus. During this time, the apostle Paul was ministering in Ephesus. Philemon goes from Colossae, it's about 160 kilometers to Ephesus, and in the providence and the grace of God, he meets the apostle Paul, and Paul leads him to faith in Jesus. So when Paul was finished his ministry in Ephesus, he made his way back to Colossae, and he and Philemon planted a church in Philemon's home. And that church grew, and a bond of fellowship, a bond of deep connection 
relational bond developed between Paul and Philemon. It's probable at this time that this young man by the name of Onesimus that we're going to learn about, Onesimus was one of Philemon's slaves. It's probable that it was at this time that Onesimus met the great apostle Paul. Onesimus is a word that means useful. And it was probably given to him by Philemon. It's probable, I'm saying probable a lot because we don't know the details, but it's probable that Onesimus came into Philemon's home as a young child and grew up in his home. He was uh, an industrious young man. He was a hard worker. And so Philemon gave him the name of Onesimus, meaning useful. But at some point in time, Onesimus got tired of being a slave and he wanted to run. He wanted to get rid of this bondage that he was under and he hatched a plan to leave his home in, in Philemon's house in Colossae and escape to Rome. He wanted to be free. And so with lots of premeditation and lots of malice, I believe, Onesimus stole a large amount of money He also probably took some jewelry and took some clothing and fled from Colossae and made his way to Rome. And his plan was to find anonymity, to find freedom and get lost in the teeming masses of the city of Rome, which at that time was well over a million people. And so he took the money, he got on a ship at Ephesus probably, went to Rome And his plan was to live as a fugitive. At this time, Paul, who was living under house arrest, so it's now about 61, 62 AD, Paul is living under house arrest in Rome. And it's likely that Onesimus, like the prodigal son, went through his money, didn't have any other way to support himself, and remembered about the apostle Paul. And so Onesimus sought out Paul, He went and found him, and Paul embraced him, shared the gospel with him, probably again, because I'm sure he had heard it before, back in Colossae in Philemon's house. Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus, and God opens Onesimus' heart, and he comes to faith in Christ, and he is born again, transformed by the Spirit of God. And Paul leads Onesimus to Jesus. And then after his conversion, Onesimus lives up to his name again. He becomes, the Apostle Paul says, he becomes useful to Paul. He becomes a helper to Paul in the ministry in Rome. But Paul knew that he was obligated, under the circumstances of that time, he was obligated to send Onesimus back to Philemon. And this would have been a very, very difficult decision for Paul. Because Onesimus was a runaway slave. Onesimus was a fugitive from Roman law. In Roman culture, slaves had no right. They were considered chattel. They could be sold, whipped, crucified at the whim of their master. And Romans lived in a lot of fear. As a matter of fact, at this time, there were more slaves from all over the world, more slaves in Rome than there were free people. And the people of Rome lived in fear of a slave revolt. And so they used brutality. They used cruelty. They used intimidation to keep their slaves subservient and docile. 
So Philemon would have been under pressure to make an example of Onesimus. But regardless of this, Paul felt compelled to send Onesimus back to Philemon, back to Ephesus. And so having completed his letter to the church of Colossae, which is in our Bible, we call it the book of Colossians, he also wrote a letter called the book of Philemon, the book that we're going to look at. And he gave the letter of Colossians to Tychicus, one of his followers, one of his disciples. And then he wrote this short letter to Philemon and he gave it to Onesimus. And he told them to go back to Colossae. Tychicus carrying the letter of Colossians, the book of Colossians. Philemon carrying the letter from Paul to Philemon about himself, about Onesimus. That would have been a long journey for Onesimus. He didn't know what fate awaited him. He didn't know how Philemon was going to react. He didn't know what kind of welcome he was going to get when he got back to Philemon's house. He wasn't sure what was going to happen, but he was trusting God. And so they land at Ephesus and make the 160-kilometer journey to Colossae. They go to the home of Philemon, which would have been a large home, They would have knocked in the door. A slave that would have recognized both of these men opened the door. And he would have been shocked. He invited Onesimus and Tychicus in. And they were taken in to see Philemon. And Onesimus gave Philemon a letter. And I want to read you that letter right now. This is what we call the book of Philemon, but it's a letter from Paul. To Philemon, and it says this Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough to command... In Christ, to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I'd have been glad to keep him with me, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you'd receive me. If he has wronged you at all, 
or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Philemon would have looked up, and he knew he had a decision to make. Was he going to do what his neighbors would have suggested he do and punish, severely punish, a runaway slave? Would he embrace this man as a brother and forgive him? What happened? Well, we know what happened. Church history tells us that Onesimus became the bishop of Ephesus. He served there after the Apostle Paul many years later. Tradition tells us that he was the one that ensured that this letter that I just read was included in the canon of Scripture. He was martyred either by Domitian late in the first century or by Trajan in the very early stages of the second century AD as an old man who had served God faithfully all of his life. And the reason that we're reading this book and the reason that we're talking about this book and the reason the Church of Colossae had such an effective ministry in the days that it did was because one man forgave another man. Forgiveness is so critical. It's so critical for the church. We wouldn't be talking about this letter if it wasn't for the fact that Onesimus was forgiven by a man named Philemon. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me now and ask God's blessing on our time in this passage of scripture. Father, I pray. I pray that the grace of the gospel would be lived out in each of our lives. Lord, we live in a context, in the church, in our homes, at work, where we are hurt. And sometimes we cause hurt. And in order that there would be unity amongst us as your people, there has to be forgiveness. The grace of forgiveness must flow between us. For the church to work properly, forgiveness must flow. Grace must lead to peace through the ministry of forgiveness. And so, Father, I pray that as people who have been forgiven by the grace of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would implant within us a passion to forgive. Or even right now, some of us may be thinking about people who have wronged us and hurt us. People who have done what others might say is unforgivable. I pray, Father, that over these next couple of weeks that you would teach us much about forgiveness, but not just intellectually or cognitively or theoretically. Let it be lived, Father, I pray. Let us live it out for your kingdom's sake, for your church's sake, and for our sake, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So why is forgiveness so necessary? Why is it so critical that we as Christians love one another enough that we would forgive? And I think there's three things in this passage of Scripture I want to point out to you. And the first is this. 
that genuine forgiveness leads to peace. Let me read the first few verses of this book again. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And I want you to think about the, how he introduces this book and think about how he introduces other books as I read it. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Appia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Normally when the Apostle Paul begins a letter, he, he kind of talks about his credentials. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, called by gods, right? He's talking about who he is, and he's exercising a certain amount of authority over the church. You read that in Galatians and other places. Here, it's very, very different. This is a personal letter, but it's an incredibly egalitarian letter. He begins by talking, taking a very humble tact. He talks about himself as a prisoner for Jesus Christ and Timothy as his brother, not his son, his brother. He calls Philemon his beloved fellow worker. Apphia, his sister. Archippus, he says, he's a soldier like me in the Lord's army. We're working together in the kingdom. And then he addresses the church in their home. And then he speaks about grace and peace. Grace and peace. See, what Paul is doing here is he's subtly, but he is emphatically talking about the fact that in the kingdom of God, there is no hierarchy. There's no pecking order in the kingdom. At the foot of the cross, all the ground is level. And he's sort of saying this subtly, but emphatically in the way he's introducing this book. There is no rank, there is no status, there is no hierarchy, there is no pecking order in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is because of grace. Grace is the great leveler. All of us are sinners who come to the foot of the cross broken by sin. doesn't matter who we are. The ground at the foot of the cross <clears throat> is absolutely level. Grace is the great leveler. And it's this grace through which peace flows. And Paul knows that. And he's reminding Philemon of that fact. Paul is saying, we are sinners saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us is more noble. None of us is more worthy. None of us is more deserving than anyone else. We are all recipients of the grace of God. And the only thing that we contributed to our salvation was what? The sin that made it necessary. See, that's the point that I think he's making as he begins. And he's saying that through the grace of Christ, we have received peace with God. We have been brought into fellowship with God because of the grace of God. God's grace in my life led to peace with God. Philemon, God's grace in your life has brought you to a place where now that you are at peace with God. And the same thing is true of Onesimus, and the same thing is true of all of us. Grace leads to peace with God. And it's this grace, this forgiveness that flows from the gospel that allows us not only to know peace with God, but peace with one another. You see, it's the grace and understanding grace that allows us to live in peace with one another. We have peace with God because of the grace of God, and we have peace in the church because we give others that which God has given us in Christ. It's a simple equation. 
God has given us his grace. He has forgiven us. And as a consequence, we have peace with God. We give that grace that Christ has given to us to other people. And as a consequence, we have peace within the church, within our home, within our marriage, within our family. You see, grace, the grace of forgiveness is the conduit through which peace flows, right? Grace compels forgiveness and reconciliation that creates and maintains peace in our lives. You see, the grace that we understand, the grace that we enjoy, the grace that we have received from Christ that has brought us to a place of peace with God, when we give it away, we create an atmosphere, we create a context, we create an ethos that has no replica. There is nothing like it in all of the world. That's why the church is so fantastic. That's why the church is such an amazing thing. There is nothing like the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because people from all different backgrounds, all different cultures come together. It's this melting pot and we're all brought together and we all have elbows and we all hurt each other and we all wound each other intentionally sometimes, mostly not intentionally. But when that happens, what do we do? We show people grace. We love each other. We forgive one another. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven us. We give away what God has given to us. And in doing that, we create an ethos that you can't replicate anywhere else on this planet. That's what makes a church so powerful. And non-Christians come into this context and they go, wow, what is that? It's the presence of God's grace. And it's there where God commands a blessing. Don't you love Psalm 133? He talks about where brothers dwell together in unity, in love. That's where God commands his blessing to fall down. That's where God commands his grace to be felt. I love what James says in James 3, verse 18. He says this, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who what? Make peace. But by peacemakers, by people who know how to give the grace of God to others. A harvest of righteousness. What is the harvest that the church is supposed to bring in? Lost souls, lost people, people who need Christ. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who are peacemakers, by those who love one another enough to give away the grace that God has given to us. Such a crucial thing. And if the church doesn't have it, if we're not passionate about it, if the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is not something that we are passionate about, our church will suffer. Our church will suffer. But it's enabling, it's being able to see how much Christ has forgiven me that enables me to give to you that same grace. When I understand what God has done for me in Christ on the cross, I'm empowered to be able to then forgive someone who was wounded, betrayed, hurt me. So that's the first thing. Secondly, genuine forgiveness validates the gospel. Genuine forgiveness validates the gospel. Look at verses four through seven with me. And I want you to notice here how he kind of begins to butter up Philemon. Look at all the nice things he says about Philemon in verses 4, 5, 
and seven. Because in verse six, he makes his ask of him. He tells him what he's praying for him, but just watch. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ Jesus. For I have derived much joy and comfort from you, from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You see what he does there? In verses four and five, and in verse seven, he encourages, he edifies, he blesses Philemon. He says, God has made you this loving, faith-filled, joyful, inspiring, edifying, comforting man. You've blessed and you've loved on so many people. And then right in the middle of that, he says, but this is what I am praying you will do. And there's this verse six, it's kind of a cryptic. So when you read that, you think, what in the world is Paul actually saying there? Let me give you my translation of verse six. I think what Paul is saying is this. He says, Philemon, I am praying that the fellowship created by your faith will be lived out in such a way that will effectively reveal the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us through the gospel for the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ. Essentially, what he is saying is this, Philemon, I don't want you just to forgive Onesimus for what Onesimus has done. I want your forgiveness to exemplify. I want your forgiveness of Onesimus to illustrate. I want your forgiveness forgiveness of this brother in Christ to typify the gospel. I want you to love him in such a way that the gospel is going to be seen in how you relate to him. I want your forgiveness to illustrate the gospel. Because... Genuine forgiveness evidences. When we forgive one another, we are presenting, we are preaching the gospel without saying a word. When we give grace to someone who may not deserve it, we are typifying, we are exemplifying the gospel because that's exactly what God in Christ has done for you. When God forgave you when you didn't deserve it, when you weren't even looking for him, When God intersected the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, what did he do in that moment? He gave an undeserving sinner grace. He forgave him. He brought him into the family of God. And when we forgive one another, we are exemplifying the gospel. Forgiveness is the gospel in action. It evidences, it substantiates, it authenticates the veracity, the truthfulness of the gospel. Forgiveness is the gospel in action. And for the church to succeed, listen to me, for the church to succeed, this church needs two things. It needs an orthodox presentation of the gospel. You got to get the gospel right. The other thing you need is it needs a context, an ethos that speaks the truth of what we are saying, what we are articulating. If a church has those two things, that church cannot be stopped. I am convinced of it. A church that is presenting the gospel orthodoxly, presenting the truth clearly, and then a church that's context, it's ethos, screams that message without saying a word, is an unstoppable church. It is the most powerful force in the world. It is a life-changing, soul-saving context. That's why it's so critical. And that's why it was so critical that Philemon forgave Onesimus. Paul is saying... Live the gospel. Do for others what Jesus has done for you. 
And not only preach it, live it. And when you do that, you can't be stopped, Colossians. You cannot be stopped. For when, the, when forgiveness and the ethos it fosters begin to characterize the church, we become a living illustration of the gospel. It's powerful. It's so powerful. Where does Satan attack us most? He attacks us. He, he tries to get us to present a corrupted gospel. He loves that. But when we will not corrupt the gospel, what does he do? He tries to create an ethos, a context, in which our actions deny and belie the things that we're saying. And if he can do that, he knows that he's won. He knows that he's won. That's why it is absolutely critical for us who preach a message of reconciliation to live a life of reconciliation. We preach a message of reconciliation and peace. And our milieu, the context, our, the world in which we live, the world that we invite the lost into, shouts unmistakably, powerfully, that the message is true. That the gospel is true. But when we allow unresolved conflicts, when we allow bitterness broken relationships. When we allow those things to just fester in a church, we honestly deny the gospel. We have a preacher standing up here saying one thing and we have a group of people down there saying the opposite. And we're at cross purposes with each other. And it's a, it, it breaks the heart of God. And it should break our hearts. Unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, acrimony, animosity among believers denies and contradicts the message we seek to preach. It nullifies our testimony. You know, in my, like I've been a pastor for a long time, in my 40 plus years of preaching, I've seen churches trying all kinds of things to attract people to come to church. Like I remember way back, I was just talking to my father-in-law about this a couple of days ago. I had these bumper stickers called I Found It. And you stuck them on your back of your car and it was supposed to, supposed to encourage people to ask you what is it you found and that was going to save the world. And then I saw bumper stickers going on people's cars that said I never lost it. I've seen so many churches invest in programs and methodologies and strategies and formulas that are supposed to be sure-fired ways to win non-Christians to Christ. We try to attract seekers with the best music and have the best preaching and have the best whatever. And, bas and basically Jesus says, be faithful to the message and love one another and I'll do the rest. Be faithful to the message, preach the gospel clearly, and love one another, and I'll do the rest. I want you to, I, I, I want you to go to John chapter 17. This, this passage of scripture has meant a lot to me as I've understood it over the last many years. Jesus is praying in John 17. It's like his high priestly prayer. Just, he's about to go to the cross. He's prayed for his disciples, and now he begins to pray for us. Prays for those who will believe 
in him through the testimony of the disciples. He's talking about us. This is Christ's prayer for us. And he prays one thing three times. And he talks about the consequence of that one prayer twice. And I want you to think about this because it should rock our socks. It should blow our minds when we think about this. Look at what, look at what Jesus said. He says, he's speaking to his father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's us. That they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So somehow what Jesus is praying there, that our unity communicates the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. You see that? And then, and then he says it again. Listen to what he says. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, may be perfectly unified. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Folks, get this. The truth of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, is communicated to the world by our loving one another. And if Satan can get us to live resentful, cold, bitter, unforgiving, we're denying the gospel. It is the most important thing. Preach the gospel, live the gospel, and the world doesn't have a chance. People will come to Jesus. The lost will be saved. It is undeniable. That's why Jesus prayed it three times. Because through our unity, through our oneness, through our love, the world will come to believe that God sent Jesus. So critical, so absolutely critical that we understand this and live it out. There's nothing in the world like a love-filled church. But when we don't love one another, when we're not committed to forgiving one another and living in relational integrity with one another, what are we? I can preach with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I have no love, what am I? I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cement. I am simply an irritant to the world. And so much of our evangelistic work is just irritating the world. What they need is to see the gospel in action in our lives as we forgive one another. So my guess is, if this church is anything like the church that I pastored for all those years, there are unresolved issues amongst you. Maybe between you and your wife. Maybe between you and your brother-in-law or your, you and your children or you and your mom and dad. I don't know. But the call of God on all of us is to make it right. To forgive. And we're going to talk about details. Like, what is the nature of forgiveness? We'll talk about that next week. How do you do it? What does it look like? And I guess my question is this. How can we have the gall? How can we have the temerity to receive from Christ his grace and his mercy and his love and not be willing to give it to somebody who's hurt us? When you think about what your sin did to Jesus, 
and he has forgiven you. He endured the cross. He despised the shame because of the joy that was set before him to have a fellowship with us, to be here in our midst right now, to find joy in our worship. Because of that, he went to the cross and he laid down his life to purchase you and he has given you grace and now you have peace with God. Your sins are forgiven. You're on your way to heaven and it's all because of him. How can you not give a little bit of that grace that you have received from him to that person who wounded you? That person who said that malicious, unkind thing. And it may be deeper than that and it may be more, the hurt may be profound. But by the grace of God, you can, and I believe must, forgive. So it validates the gospel, but thirdly, it validates our own salvation. Put very simply, Christians forgive. It's what we do. It's the, we're in the business of forgiving. And I want, you to, I want you to show how Paul makes this clear. He says in verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, I could tell you to do this, Philemon. I could just tell you to do it. I could tell you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Those words there, that, that word command and required, they're both, one's a verb, one's a, um, um, well, one, they're both verbal. They're both action words. And what he's saying here is that I could tell you to do this thing because it's the right thing to do. It's what Christians do. It's what we're called to do. We forgive. And I could tell you, but I don't want to tell you, I want you to do it out of your own volition, out of your own free will. So I want to say this, and I want to say it clearly. Forgiveness is not based on how you feel toward the other person. Christians forgive people that they're still wounded by, still crushed by in some instances. It's not rooted in our feelings. And I've heard so many people tell, well, I don't feel like I should forgive him yet. Well, that, that's got nothing to do with the gospel. Paul is saying, I'm, look, I could tell you what to do. I could order you. I could command you to do the right thing because that's what Christians do. But I'm appealing to you to do the right thing because I want you to act out not of compulsion. I want you to act out of compassion. Let me take you to a passage of Scripture in Matthew that is a little challenging say the least. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, verse 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Now that's, that is a succinct and startlingly blunt message from Jesus. And why does he say it that way? Because he knows that the, that the people that his death and resurrection are going to create are going to be people who are so impacted by the gospel that their instinct, their passion, their desire will be to forgive. Will it be easy? No. The cross wasn't easy for Jesus either. But he knows that he's going to create a people, a church, 
a called out people and his spirit is going to be in them and their passion, their heart will be to give away the grace of God to others. It's what we do. These, these words are predicated on Jesus' conviction that every truly saved believer has the capacity to forgive. As I said at the beginning, that capacity is rooted in understanding the enormity of our forgiveness, right? Truly saved people get this. That's why forgiveness validates our salvation. Truly saved people get it. There's a ton of cheap grace in evangelicalism today. Prayer, prayer, come to Jesus. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Go to church on Sunday, tithe a little bit, and you're going to go to heaven. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ transforms sinners from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit. He brings us to the foot of the cross. Understand this. He brings us to the foot of the cross, and he breaks our heart over sin. See, the gospel crushes us, or it should. The gospel breaks us at the foot of the cross. That's why the old preachers, and I shared this before in the, in, as we were praying with the staff and the, and the worship team before the service. John Wesley, George Whitfield, they used to always say, a man cannot come to Calvary until he has gone to Sinai. And what he meant by that is that the law of God has to break a man or a woman's heart. We've got to understand how our sin is so offensive to God. How we ourselves are a violation of his holiness. And yet Christ became sin for us in order that we could become the righteousness of God through him. You see, I'm, I'm convinced that unless... I'm convinced that we are incapable of genuinely forgiving another brother or sister or someone until we have experienced genuine repentance. Until the weight of our sin has fallen heavily upon us. Until we understand the gospel, not just theoretically or cognitively or intellectually, but until it has broken our heart and we have wept over our sin and then wept with joy over the forgiveness of the gospel. Until that transaction has happened, I don't think the capacity is there to forgive the way God is going to call us to forgive. But when that happens, when we understand the depth of the love of Christ for us and what he did on the cross, when that grips us, something happens in our souls that enables us to forgive the unforgivable. Remember, Jesus went to the home of the Pharisee in Luke. Simon, the Pharisee, he was invited for a meal to this man's house. Simon doesn't properly welcome him. Simon, the Pharisee, doesn't anoint his head, doesn't give him water to wash his feet. But there was a prostitute who somehow got into this Pharisee's house, and she wept. She wept at the feet of Jesus, and her tears wet his feet. And with her hair, she dried his feet and kissed them and anointed them with oil. And of course, the Pharisee's offended because he thinks if this man is a prophet, he should know that this woman is a prostitute. And 
she, he should not allow this woman to touch him. And Jesus tells the man a story. I want to read you this little parable. Jesus says to Simon, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, so now he's looking at this woman and he's speaking to the Pharisee. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet and she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now listen. I think this is the 740, Luke 747, one of the most powerful verses, one of the biggest verses in, in Luke. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. You see that? The one who doesn't appreciate the depth of their sin it doesn't appreciate the gospel, doesn't appreciate the cross, doesn't appreciate what Jesus has done for us, loves little. That's why cheap grace cannot build a church because the church requires an authentic presentation of an accurate gospel and an authentic milieu, an authentic context that reflects the gospel. And cheap grace just cannot create that. But the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ does. When the Lord brings us to understand our sin and how much he has done for us to bring us into his family. When we see the depth of our sin and the magnificence of who we are now in Christ, we are changed. And out of that reservoir of grace flows peace. And Satan doesn't have an antidote. Satan cannot stop that church. Grace and peace to you, my brothers and sisters. So I want you to do this. I want you to think about how much Jesus has loved you. Think about the sins that he has forgiven. Think about the price that he paid to redeem you. And then ask God for the grace to go and make it right with your spouse, with your brother, your sister, at home or in the church, with that elder, that pastor, that friend. Ask God to give you the grace to give away what he has given to you in Christ. Uh, I'm just going to pray. And then I'm going to ask, I'm going to have a little, maybe just a minute. allow, Allow us to pray quietly, personally, asking God to do in our hearts what only he can do. Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you so much for your grace. I thank you that you went to the cross for a vile sinner like myself. I thank you, Lord, that there have been moments in my life when that sin has brought tears to my eyes as I think about what it is that you took upon yourself and who I am now in Christ through the gospel and through 
the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. That amazing gulf between who we were and who we are, Lord, needs to be understood. Lord, I just want to pray for any man, woman, young person in this room who has never understood the depth of their sin. Who has sort of shrugged at it and said, well, yeah, okay, I'll just accept Jesus and go to heaven. No big deal. But I pray that you would open their eyes to see what it was that put your son on the cross. Help them understand that had they been there, they would have taken the hammer and nails and nailed him themselves. Allow us to see, Lord, what it is that we did to you. Then allow us to understand what it is that you have done for us. That when we were enemies, we were dead in our sin. We loved darkness more than light. We were running away from you. You intersected our lives because of grace. You forgave us. You paid the price and you opened our eyes to understand that. You've made us new, new creatures in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to live in that new creatureliness. To give grace that peace might flow. So I pray in these next few moments, Holy Spirit, that you would just allow us to see that gulf, that great gulf between where we were and who we are now. Because we know that those who are forgiven little love little. So let us see the greatness of your forgiveness, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.